0: Hey friends, good to see you. I hope you're doing well and taking care of yourselves and the people who are important to you. This is the People Are the Enemy podcast. I assume you know that already, unless you just mistakenly picked up some stranger's Bluetooth signal. If that's the case, I'll introduce myself. Hello, my name is Andy Mascola. I'm the host of this podcast. There are no ads on this show, and there's no Patreon. I would like you to know, however, that I am an independently published author of seven novels, they're all standalone stories, meaning they're not part of a series. You can read them in any order. All my books are available right now, worldwide, via Amazon, in both paperback and ebook editions. If you don't use Amazon, you can find most of my novels in paperback format at barnesandnoble.com. If you love to read or you just want to help support myself and this fine program, please pick up one of my books. Most paperbacks are just $9 US, and ebook versions are either $1.99 or $2.99 US. And when you buy a paperback via Amazon, you get the ebook version of that book for free. If you've already purchased any or all of my books, thank you so, so much. I appreciate your patronage and consideration and with all that out of the way, here's the quirky theme zone. People are the Enemy listeners. This is episode 126 of the People are the Enemy podcast. Thank you for checking it out. I think you've made the right decision. Uh, Today I'll be reading part three of a story I wrote called Car Partners. You're welcome to listen if you haven't heard parts one and two, but you may be a little lost. So if, if you want to totally understand what's going on, I'd advise you to stop listening and go back and listen to episodes 124 and 125 first. What I'm going to do now is back up a bit and read the last few sentences of part two to refamiliarize those who have been following along, and then I'll move right into part three. So without further ado, I give you Car Partners, part three. I walk down the hall and into our bedroom. Something's off. Our bed is unmade, which makes sense since Greg had been sleeping when I left for Car Partners this morning. But there's something strange about our bedroom's scent. I close the door and take my sneakers off. I pull the sheets back and breathe deeply. I kneel down on the floor to get closer to the smell. Something is under my knee. I reach down on the floor and pick up a cell phone. I hit the button on the phone's face. The screen lights up, and I see two unanswered text messages. My heart drops into my stomach. The phone on the floor of the bedroom my boyfriend and I share belongs to Brittany. I feel a shock run through my entire body, as if my bones have been turned to ice. I'm immediately, simultaneously enraged and on the verge of tears, but I know crying won't help. Brittany's phone begins to vibrate in my hand. I look and see that it's Greg calling. I feel my body shaking with rage. I roughly shimmy my feet back into the sneakers I just took off. Greg opens the bedroom door, his phone in his hand. What the fuck, I say, holding up Brittany's phone. I can explain, Greg says. Fuck you, I say, attempting to walk past him. Greg grabs my arm. Emily, wait, he says. Don't touch me, I say, pulling myself free before walking out of the room and slamming the door. He opens the door and walks toward me. Emily, Emily, he says. I turn to face him. How long, I ask. Emily, I'm... Greg starts. How long, I shout. A couple weeks, he says. I pick up my keys and purse from the table and open the door to our unit. Where are you going, he asks. I walk down the hall without answering. Can you at least give me her phone? Greg says loudly from the open door to our apartment. I look down and realize I'm still holding Brittany's phone. I stop and turn. On the wall next to me is the door for the building's garbage chute. I open it. Emily, don't! He shouts. I drop Brittany's phone into the chute and continue down the hall. I walk through the doors of our building and outside and down the cement stairs. I don't know where I'm going. I only know I need to walk. I begin to cry. I take a pair of sunglasses out of my purse and put them on. After about twenty minutes of walking and feeling bad for myself, the tears stop. After about an hour of walking, I'm hungry and tired. I duck into a 7-Eleven and walk down an aisle, stopping in front of a rack of potato chips. A woman who looks to be about my age walks down the aisle just in front of an older man who appears to be mentally handicapped. The older man takes a bag of chips off the rack and moans. No, Gary, the woman says, taking the bag of chips out of his hand and putting it back on the rack. As soon as she turns to continue down the aisle, the man takes the chips off the rack again. The woman turns back toward him and sighs, exasperated. No, Gary, not today. These aren't for you, she says, as she again takes the bag out of Gary's hands and puts it back. This time she has the man walk in front of her. She pauses and takes a box of band-aids off a rack on the opposite side of the chips and continues around the corner. I pick up a small yellow bag of Lay's from the rack and walk down to the refrigerators where the drinks are. I pull a bottle of sweet leaf iced tea out and make my way to the register. At the end of one of the aisles, my foot kicks a keyring that slides across the floor and hits the molding in front of the Slurpee machine. I pick the keys up and notice a plastic tag hang off it that reads, Riverbend Health. I put two and two together and assume the keys must belong to the woman walking with the handicapped man. I stand on my tiptoes, looking over the racks. I see the woman and the older man walking out of the store. I walk quickly up to the counter and put my things down in front of the clerk, then walk outside. Excuse me, I say. The woman and the handicapped man are standing just outside of a white van that has the same Riverbend Health logo as on the keychain. I hold up the keys, shaking them. The woman turns toward me. Oh, she says, feeling on her waistband, where I assumed the keys had been hanging. Thank you, she says, reaching for the keys. As I hold them out for her, the mentally handicapped man firmly grabs my forearm. A sudden feeling of overwhelming peace runs through my arm from where he's touching me, into my chest, and up my neck, and into my face. For a full second, I'm unable to breathe. But there's no fear, only tranquility and a kind of gentle tickle that flows through my torso and head like an ecstatic wave of pleasure and relaxation. With one hand, the woman takes the keys, and with the other, she pulls Gary's hand off my arm. She slides the van's side door open and helps him inside. As the wonderful feeling I'm experiencing begins to fade, I touch the place on my arm where the handicapped man's hand was. There's nothing unusual there. I breathe in deeply, savoring the feeling. I watch as the young woman closes the van's side door, then gets into the driver's seat. She smiles and waves at me through the window. I just stand there, still somewhat paralyzed by the unexpected touch and subsequent euphoric vibration I'd just experienced. I stare dumbly at the van as it pulls out of the parking lot and drives away. A moment later, the overwhelmingly pleasurable feeling has completely disappeared, and I feel okay enough to move again. I walk back inside the convenience store and pay for my chips and drink. I make my way further down the street until I find a bench where I sit and eat my chips and drink my iced tea while watching people pass. Women stroll by in pairs, talking and drinking from water bottles. I assume they're on their lunch breaks. I think about Brittany and imagine her with Greg in my bed. It makes me nauseous, and I toss my unfinished drink and chips into a nearby trash can. For a moment, I consider calling my mother. But I know explaining my discovery to her regarding Greg and Brittany will lead to questions. And I also know my mother's inevitable pity will only make me start crying again. I take my phone out of my purse and look at it. Someone's left me a voicemail. Right now, I don't want to hear Greg or Brittany's voices. And I want to have to call someone back and pretend as if I didn't just catch my boyfriend cheating or, worse, explain to a random acquaintance why I'm a mess right now. I'm upset. And I'm angry and I'm embarrassed. It's been two hours since I walked out of the apartment. I tell myself that time will eventually heal this pain, and that even though it hurts now, it's getting a little bit easier with each second that passes. I remind myself that even though this is the first time this sort of thing has happened to me, I'm not the first person this has happened to, and I won't be the last. Heck, it's probably happened to 40 other people in the last half hour. On my walk back home, I keep myself somewhat distracted by thinking back on my bizarre experience in the 7-Eleven parking lot, and while I can't bring my body to recreate the incredible sensation I'd felt, I can certainly recall the feeling in my sense memory. Contemplating that moment helps keep my mind off the Greg and Brittany situation. When I arrive back at the apartment, I look for Greg's car in the parking lot. I don't see it. I walk inside and open the door to our unit. After dropping my keys and purse on the kitchen table, I use the bathroom. While sitting on the toilet, I look around, pulling the shower curtain open. Greg's soap and shampoo are gone. While washing my hands, I notice that his toothbrush and shaving razor are also missing. I look around our bedroom. Greg's TV, chair, and gaming system are gone, as are his pillow and the clothes he had hanging in our closet. I strip the bed folding the sheets over any parts that Greg and Britney's naked bodies may have come into contact with, roll the whole thing up into a ball, and drop it into an empty laundry basket. For a moment, I consider tossing the sheets down the same garbage chute I dropped the slut's phone, but that would mean I'd have to go out and purchase new ones because this is the only set I have, and right now I'm too broke and too broken. The rest of the afternoon is spent on the couch, watching a marathon of shitty reality TV. I finish half a package of Oreos before baking and eating most of a frozen pepperoni pizza. At some point, I fall asleep. I wake in the middle of the night, still dressed. I shut off the TV, pull the blanket off the back of the couch, and fall back to sleep. The next morning, I'm woken by my phone vibrating on the coffee table. I roll over. After a few minutes, it vibrates again, reminding me to check the message that came in. I sit up and pick my phone up off the table. It's 6 a.m. The message is a screenshot from Mark of my next assignment for car partners. I'd forgot all about having to work. I consider texting Mark back and telling him I can't make it, but I need the money. And the alternative to not going to car partners is staying home and thinking about Greg and Brittany. I open the screenshot Mark sent of today's assignment. The client is a woman named Victoria Parks. The job will require me to frost and decorate 50 cupcakes This sounds kind of fun, and at least I'll be busy and making money. But then there's the matter of transportation. I don't have any. I check the bus schedule. There's a pickup near our building at 7.20 that will stop again at a block past the building car partners is in at 7.50. That'll give me ten minutes to hoof it from the stop to the car partner's office. It's overcast and breezy. I shower and dress in a gray zip-up hooded sweatshirt, jeans, and sneakers. I make a piece of toast with butter and take it, along with a bottle of water, with me as I lock up the apartment and head to the bus stop. The only other person at the bus stop is an old black woman. She's wearing a red hat and holding a large bag on her lap. I sit next to her on the bench and drink my water as I listen to her softly humming to herself. The bus arrives and we both get on. I scroll through social media on my phone, watching funny things to cheer myself up. The bus arrives at my stop right on time. I exit and walk to the building where Car Partners is. The city is waking up. As I walk, I see empty parking spaces on the street, quickly getting filled. I pass a busy coffee shop and watch corporate types walk out while talking on their phones, carrying large white cups of hot liquid. As I get closer to Car Partners, I see Jacob walking from the other direction. He's wearing an olive-colored Adidas tracksuit and white sneakers. I wave. He sees me and smiles and waves back. He reaches the building to the door before I do and holds it open for me. Thanks, I say, walking inside. You get your assignment? Jacob asks. I did, I say. Not more ice cream feeding, I hope, he says. Not today, I say. Cupcakes. Get out of here, Jacob says, laughing. Really? 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 I guess this woman needs 50 cupcakes frosted and decorated, I say. And you're expected to do this while she drives, I shrug. Well, I'm glad you're on cupcake duty, because I can't decorate for shit. What's your assignment, I ask. Pencil sharpening, Jacob says. Pencil sharpening, I say. Lucky you. Dude's probably administering some kind of test that requires number two pencils or something, Jacob says. As we near the third floor, we can hear Mark and Cheryl arguing. I turn to look at Jacob, his eyebrows raised as if to say, "Uh uh-oh. We both begin to walk up the steps slower, if only to try to make out what's being said. I don't give a shit, Cheryl says as Jacob and I ascend the last flight of stairs. You said you were going to handle this. This wasn't part of the deal. Does it really matter? Mark says. Yes, it does. This is on you. I'm done. After today, I'm done, Cheryl says. Okay, okay, Mark says as he turns and sees us walking up the steps. Cheryl pushes past him and runs down the stairs, past us, turns and says, come on, we gotta go. Jacob and I look at each other, then at Cheryl. You and me, Cheryl says, pointing at me. He's driving you, Cheryl says while looking at Jacob and pointing to Mark. I turn and follow Cheryl downstairs and outside. As soon as we exit the building, she lights a cigarette. She's walking fast down the street. I'm struggling to keep up. We get in her brown Chevy Malibu, and she immediately starts the car and pulls out onto the street. Okay, that was the end of Car Partners, Part 3, written and read by Andy Mascola. The songs we played were Zigzag, Chill Wave, and Miami Viceroy, all by Kevin MacLeod. You can find Kevin's music at Incompetech.com. All songs were licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0. A, license, a link to this license can be found in the description of this episode. This has been episode 126 of the People Are the Enemy podcast. Our theme song is Walrus Love by Nokia Ocean. You can find that song and more at pizzapuppies.bandcamp.com. My name is Andy Mascola. You can purchase my novels via Amazon and other online book retailers in both paperback and ebook formats for as little as $1.99. Thank you for listening. Thank you for subscribing. We love you. Peace.